0: My car got repossessed. Mm-hmm. Back when you know I was a freelancer, and sometimes you get paid, sometimes you wouldn't, and you make decisions about like, okay, well, I need to pay my rent, mm-hmm. but my car payment—they're not going to come and take your car after a couple months. And they're like, "Watch this." Exactly. <laughs> and then one day I wake up, I go out to my car, it's gone. I call the cops. I'm like, "Yo, someone stole my car." You can almost hear the cop on the other end like, "Nigga, <laughs> you're broke ass." <laughs> You weren't a victim of a crime. (laughs) Maybe crime of being broke. Broke. (laughs) Welcome back, everyone. Stuff with David Young. The show where we're all dealing with PTBD, post-traumatic brokenness disorder. So housing is a human right. Well, it should be a human right. And like many other rights in this country, Black Americans have had restricted and conditional access to housing for as long as we've been here. Redlining, loan denial, criminal background checks. I mean, the list is endless because the list is arbitrary, because the list continues to grow, because they continue to find new ways for us to be discriminated against and denied. And to talk about some of the barriers in place for us to own homes, and sometimes even just to rent, I'm joined by Vice News correspondent Alzo Slade, who, like me, has also had an intimate relationship with home-based discrimination. And then for Dear Damon, I'm joined by Essence Magazine senior politics editor, Malika Jabali, as we put our heads together to try to see if the concept of chivalry needs any updates. All right, y'all, let's get it. Alzo Slade is the correspondent of Vice News. Among many other things. I mean, you can see him (laughs) if you're ever in Eaton Hotel in D.C., you will see him on the screen somewhere and on television screens near you. Alzo, do you remember the first time we met?
1: Was it at a party?
0: It was at Essence Fest.
1: Essence Fest, yes.
0: It was at Essence Fest. I was kicking it with Jamila Lemieux. See the homie. And we um, went into one of them bars on the main strip and you happened to be inside there. And we start talking and you invited me, you know, to your Grits and Biscuits party later. I think it was either later that night or the, or the next day. Right, right. And so I'd never been to one, but I heard of it. I'm going to throw my producers under the bus really quickly too. <laughs> my producer Morgan and Ryan, who are both millennials, young millennials, but millennials who had never heard at this party. Black millennials? Yes, black. Exactly. Because I brought up the story when I knew you were going to be a guest and they were like Grits and Biscuits. And I'm like, do I do I got the right producers for this show? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, you know I mean, y'all are supposed to tell me about shit. I'm not supposed <laughs> to tell y'all. Y'all are supposed to keep me, you know, informed and keep me hip or whatever. So anyway, I go to this party. You know, it's live, whatever. It's at the House of Blues in New Orleans. And you did something on a mic because you were emceeing that I had never seen in a party before. I think maybe back that thing up was about to come on one one of those types of songs, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you reminded all the fellas. They get consent before they went up behind somebody and started dancing. That's right. Yeah. And I've been to dozens of parties, frat parties in college, club parties, you know, as an adult. But I had never heard an MC say that before. Yeah. You know what I mean? And again, I'm not saying that you're the only one who did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was the first time that I experienced it. Yeah. Yeah, And so, one, I just wanted to acknowledge that. No, I appreciate it, bro. And also, just ask you, like, what was the genesis of you making sure to deliver that message at your parties?
1: Well, first, I think it's at Grits and Biscuits, when we started that party... We wanted to make sure that it was a safe space for anyone who just wanted to come and get loose. Mm -hmm. Because we started it in 2010 and a lot of upperly mobile Negroes that just want to come get loose. They're doctors, lawyers, professors, nurses, you know, teachers. And for us, it was just of the utmost importance that people felt safe. And, you know, the kind of music we play is, you know, it got that bottom in it, that bass. You know what I'm saying? And when you hear that when you hear that Southern hip hop, uh-huh. when those sisters hear that, you know, uh, this for the nine nine two thousand. You already know what's about to happen. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The booties is about to drop. And, you know, you got a lot of single brothers in there that's thirsty. And it's like, listen, we know where we at. We know what folks is doing. But let's be 100 percent clear that. This is a safe space, and these these women is grown. These women ain't fucking around, and so if if you trying to if you trying to approach one first, you need to have your A game. But most importantly, it's like we ain't in high school. You ain't just about to run up on no booties and think it's okay. You don't touch unless you've been given explicit permission. And if there is any doubt, if there is any sliver of doubt, you just stand back and admire. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I feel that I'm just thinking back of my own, you know, days. I don't I don't go out as much anymore. But when I did go out, particularly when I was younger in my like teens and 20s or whatever, and consent was always a thing. But it wasn't as, I guess, aggressive consent, you know, in terms of making sure that the person that you're dancing with is okay, Yeah. With you dancing, like the consent would be if she turned around and looked. And continue to dance, right? And that was an acknowledgement that she wasn't upset enough. Right, right. To go another way. You know what I mean? And the thing is, in hindsight, thinking of those circumstances, there could have been circumstances where someone did the look back. and was like, you know what? I'm not really feeling this, but I don't want to make a scene either. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to make a scene. I don't know how this nigga's going to react. How the dude going to react. Yep, yep. And so I'm just going to go along, dance with him for these couple songs, and maybe try to separate that. Yeah. And so there is that danger, that fear that also needs to be acknowledged. But again, I just wanted to bring that up because, again, I had like 20 years of clubbing. Not 20 years. I'd say from like 17 to about 28 I was in the club.
1: Yeah, that's a good window. That's a good strong window. So about 10, 11 years
0: of time spent, and I never heard somebody say that, so kudos.
1: I appreciate it. I appreciate you, you know, acknowledging that. You know, we just try to make it fun and safe for folks. This is
0: the craziest segue ever, but, you know, I wanted to talk to you about housing inequality.
1: <laughs> you know what I mean? Hey, we don't need no segways when you got your toes and a lot of things. Like, you do, you know, you don't need no segues. Just go from one to the next. Well, you know what, though? It is related because these are both progressive ideas
0: and causes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where, obviously, they exist on different ends of the spectrum, but these are all part of, you know, just making the world safer yeah right making the world better making vulnerable people less vulnerable mm-hmm. right so it is kind of the same conversation if you want to look at it that way but i'm curious you know i'll watch your tremendous segment on vice about housing inequality but i want to talk to you about your own personal experience with that mm-hmm. now are you a homeowner i am hmm what was that process like for you? Can you just walk me through what made you decide to buy a home? What that process was like for you? If you there were any roadblocks? If there were any like racially problematic shit that happened to you while you were going through the process?
1: You know, it's interesting. When I graduated from college, I didn't drink, smoke, none of that, and so my first job, I just was saving money. I stayed with my mom for like eight months and stacked paper, and I was just like, I think I'm gonna buy a house. So I bought my first crib at 22. Oh wow. Okay. There were no barriers, then ended up getting rid of it and going to graduate school. And then I rented until I bought the house that I'm in now. And surprisingly enough, it was the rental process where I experienced more discrimination than in housing. Because I think when you are trying to buy a home, you know, obviously you're looking at, you know, areas that are safe and whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm in LA and I was like, I, when I walk out of the door, I want to see some folks, you know? And so- This home is in a black legacy neighborhood, which is, you know, gentrification is moving in, you know, to be certain. But the barriers to entry for home ownership, it was just the bread. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a significant barrier to entry for a lot of kin folks is like, you just got to have some bread stacked up for a down payment. Okay. There are a lot of folks out here, you know, black, brown or otherwise that are paying rent in the same amount that Or more that some folks are paying for mortgage because they have that income monthly, but they don't have the chip stacked up for that foundation, for that down payment, you know? Yeah. Now,
0: were your people homeowners, did you come from that environment like where it was almost like an expectation that once you were done with college, you were going to, you know, And I'm asking because I'm thinking of my own experience also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speak on it. Where like the house I live in, I bought it in 2018, five years ago. Yeah. But up until really three months before buying the house, I never considered myself like a person who would own a house. Yeah. I didn't come from that. My parents, when I was growing up, they didn't own, they rented and we lived in several different places. And then they ended up buying a house when I was in my twenties, but then they defaulted on their loan. They were part of that subprime lending crisis where a lot of people got kicked out of their homes. Mm -hmm. That happened to them in 2011. So I'm not going to quite say that we were housing insecure. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But housing always felt like just this dream. Home ownership felt like a dream. Yeah. And maybe dream is too strong of a word, but it, it just didn't feel like something that was accessible or available to me. Even as I started making enough money to have cash and do whatever, it still didn't feel accessible to me. And I feel like that's a part of this conversation too, where you have people who maybe have made enough money or have the credit or whatever, but there's that invisible barrier, right? Obviously you have the racism, right? Obviously you have, you know, all of the stuff that is connected to that, right? But then there's like, is this shit even for me?
1: I feel you. If it's not in the cultural fabric of your upbringing, like you don't know what you don't know, Mm -hmm. you know? And so you have to learn that. And I think my upbringing was similar to yours in terms of, parents owning homes. Like I was born into a home that my parents owned, but then we went to apartments and then parents got divorced and pops in an apartment. Mom kept the house and then she went into apartment because she moved. And so it wasn't until I went to college where I remember my mom, she took me and my little brother to this subdivision in Houston where she was getting a house built and it blew my mind. Like it was a two-story house, front yard, backyard. Mm -hmm. I'd never imagined us living in anything like that. And we weren't poor, like proper middle class, maybe upper middle class as my mom went further along in her graduate studies and got more degrees that came with more money. And so she was able to, you know, improve our way of life. But when I graduated, it was simply, I had money in the bank at 22 and I didn't know what else to do with it. And I was like, Well, they ain't making land no more. So I might well buy me a piece. You know what I'm saying?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I guess what flipped the switch for me was like, I started writing full time in 2011. Right. Yeah. And before that, I had like various like education related jobs, none of which paid me over like 35K a year. All right. Now I live in Pittsburgh and the standard of living is somewhat lower than it is in bigger cities, whatever. But still, you know, 35K years not a whole lot of money. And I started writing full time in like 2010, 2011, wasn't making nothing mm-hmm. enough to like pay my rent and go to brunch like once every like three months or whatever. And then, you know, progressively started making some more money. Mm-hmm. By like 2015, I was probably making about 50, 52 a year, which still that's enough to live on, but that's not really... Particularly if you're working as a freelancer and you're getting like all of these random ass checks and sometimes you're having gaps in payment and then sometimes you have a month where you get a whole lot of money.
1: It's just, man, talk about it. Folks don't know that life. <laughs> Folks don't know that life.
0: Yeah. It is hard to actually set a foundation when you have that sort of tenuous financial situation. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think a lot of people now, you know, particularly with like the economy are in that same boat where you're not having as many motherfuckers who graduate from college, step into a job, uh, yeah, work there for 30 years, mm-hmm. get the pension, get the 401k, all that settled. And then they retire at like 57. That sort of shit doesn't exist in the same capacity. So you have all these people that are hustling, all these people who are grinding. Right. And like, how do you buy a home? when something like that happens. And so for me, the switch that flipped was I got a pretty substantial book deal in 2016. Mm-hmm. And then in 2017, I sold Very Smart Brothers, my blog, to Univision. And that was also for a pretty substantial chunk of money. And so I had cash where I was able to buy a home, but I still didn't think, you know what, this is for me. Even though I had finally had money or enough money to do that, I still didn't think it was for me until someone at my bank called me and was like, you were pre-approved for a loan. And this was in early 2018.
1: So you didn't think it was for you. Was that like related to somewhat of an imposter syndrome or you just be like, it just wasn't in your view? I think it's maybe a little bit of both. Mm.
0: I had gone so long without necessarily thinking it was accessible. Yeah. That once it was accessible, it still didn't feel real. Mm -hmm. And also... I had credit issues that, again, a lot of us had. You know, I'll admit that my parents used my name mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for stuff when I was a teenager, and that kind of jacked shit up. Yep. I, you know, I was one of them niggas who signed up for, like, the free credit cards in college. And
1: freshman year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Got yeah. the T-shirt. T-shirt and years of debt. <laughs> <laughs> Got some CDs. Know <laughs> <laughs> I mean? I think I bought Nori Mob Deep. It's crazy, though, to think, like, when you've lived with less money for so long, or even, dare I say, broke. When you've been living broke for so long and you come into some money, some cats, they go crazy with the money, but then other cats, you calculate it and you like, I still got a broke disposition. So it's difficult for me to even consider or comprehend spending this amount of money on something because I don't know when it's gonna come again. Yeah, and it's something that like even
0: today, like, okay, my car got repossessed mm-hmm. back in like twenty twelve. Like back when, you know, I was a freelancer. And sometimes you get paid, sometimes you wouldn't. You know, sometimes people would be late paying you and you make decisions about like, okay, well, I need to pay my rent. Mm-hmm. I need to pay my internet bill because I need that to work. But my car payment, I can go a couple months. They're not going to come and take your car after a couple months. And they're like, watch this. <laughs> exactly. That couple months turn into three. Yeah, And then one day I wake up, I go out to my car. It's gone. I call the cops. I'm like, yo, someone stole my car. You can almost hear the cop on the other end. Like, nigga, you're broke <laughs> ass. <laughs> Shit got repoed.
1: <laughs> They're like, bro, let me just ask you one or two questions and we're going to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you weren't a victim of a crime, motherfucker. <laughs> you were. Maybe
0: crime of being, being broke. broke nah.
1: Yo, it's funny. You're talking about working as a freelancer them jokers talking about we pay you in 30 days net. I'm like, bruh, mm-mm. man, I need me, me now. <laughs> <laughs> and so
0: I ended up getting the car back, mm. but I still, to this day, right now, if I hear like a beep, beep, beep of a truck backing up in the street, I feel something in here. Your heart drops. And my car is paid for right now. <laughs> You've been traumatized, bro. Yeah, and there's that trauma. And I think that, you know, when I'm thinking about my own experience with buying a home and thinking about whether or not it was even accessible to me, all of that shit's related. Right? All of it is. And I'm wondering, like, I don't know, like, with your work, how much of that have you seen, you know, in terms of people feeling like having the means, right? Having things in place. But still feeling not not necessarily like unworthy, or not necessarily feeling like an imposter syndrome, but just feeling like this trauma that they can't necessarily find themselves out of.
1: Well, there's a couple ways to answer that question. I can treat that question as an abstraction and just look at the trauma that people have experienced from stories that I've covered across the board. But specifically, with you know a story that I recently did for Vice on Showtime, it was around housing discrimination specifically, and it was related to folks with criminal background, mm. criminal records. That's layered trauma. Yeah. I'm not sure how you would want me to answer that question. I mean, answer it whichever
0: way. You said you have multiple ways. Let's hear them both.
1: Yeah. So just specifically as we're speaking within the context of housing and housing discrimination, like, bro, it's pretty bad, dog. I ain't even going to hold you. Most of the stories I cover, they're, they're pretty difficult there's stories that need to be told but that doesn't make them easy to tell and this one is this one is around landlords who use criminal background checks in their application process and mm-hmm. statistically nearly 90% of landlords in this country use criminal records like criminal background checks in their application process and then i didn't know this before like about 1 in 3 Americans have a criminal record and then you add to that the racial biases of the American justice system and you can put two and two together Mm -hmm. and know that, you know, black folks getting screwed when they looking for housing. We're not even talking about bank loans. Yeah. We not even that redlining yet. We just talking about an apartment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there's this brother, Yusuf, that we followed and this brother. He got locked up for five years for drug distribution charge 25 years ago. Since then, the brother got a master's degree at Princeton He's a single father with a very smart, talented, athletic daughter, plays basketball. And he was in the real estate game. He owned some some units and rented them out to folks. And the company that he was working for, they moved them to Allentown, Pennsylvania. Okay. And eventually he wanted to buy a home, but he didn't know Allentown well enough to know where he would want to buy. So he and his daughter were like, well, let, yeah, let's just rent. Uh, you know, when parents are looking to live somewhere in the new city, school district is the first thing they look at, you know, where are the best schools? And so he found a dynamic, you know, high-performing school in the area, and he tried to rent. in that neighborhood denied, denied, denied. And the only place where he could get approved was a neighborhood where Pennsylvania deemed the high school to be below park, well below. Mm -hmm. And so then he had to end up, Paying, he—I mean, he had the financial means, but he pays for his child to go to private school.
0: And this is someone who is "quote unquote" the model Bruh. renter. You know what I mean? Gainfully employed, Ivy League grad, single dad. Yeah, but still thriving child. Yeah, you know, looking to put their child in a high-performance school. And again, this is someone that you would, on paper, right? Everything that could be checked is checked, except
1: for. He's black. What's crazy is like statistics show that if you've committed a crime and you were locked up, you got released and you haven't committed a crime in five to six years, the probability of you committing a crime again is the same probability as you and I committing a crime. People who have never committed one.
0: I'm wondering, though, because I misspoke earlier about black, you know, it's what denied him was his criminal record. Mm -hmm. But it's like in my head, I mix those two things up because I feel like they're part of the same thing. Like this is it's kind of like them clubs back in the day that was like, you know what? No baggy jeans, no chains, no. Right. No Timberlands. It's like, you know what you're saying. (laughs) Right. And so when you know what America is and you have a policy that denies people who have been incarcerated for any reason from renting, then you are essentially Mm -hmm. discriminating against Black people. Like, you're not coming out and saying it. Right. You know what I mean?
1: That's a good analogy, yeah.
0: But having that policy gives you the wiggle room where maybe you can rent to a white person who might have been incarcerated. But if there's a Black person, Mm -hmm. you could say, well,
1: this is a policy. Mm -hmm. It's not about race. This is just a policy. Most of the stories that I like to cover exist in the gray. you know, where there's nuance, there's layers. Mm Mm-hmm. So Seattle is one of the few cities that prohibited landlords from using criminal background checks in their application process. Mm -hmm. So I'll put this question to you, Damon. If you are a landlord, would you want to know if the person that you are potentially renting to has a criminal record? I, so my answer. Okay.
0: (laughs) My answer. Is that I think I think context matters. You know what I mean? Like, I think that if this person was a recently released sex offender, then I think I should know that. Well, so
1: you can bracket sex offender because they're on a registry. All right. I
0: think it would depend on the crime and it would depend on when they
1: were incarcerated. Like I, So you would want to know. But I wouldn't be a landlord. <laughs> no, nah, that ain't the question. <laughs> you try to put that thing in reverse. <laughs> well, that's the thing.
0: It's like, that's a sort of occupation I don't think that I would pursue because I would want to know. Now, what I would do with that information, would I bar people from renting or whatever just because they had a criminal record? No. Yeah. But I like information. Yeah. That's just
1: me. I like to
0: know things. So, yeah, I think I would want to know.
1: Yeah. How about you? Well, we spoke to renters and landlords in this piece. Mm -hmm. You know, they have some interesting perspectives. One young lady, she, her family has a nice size home and they have an additional unit that's a part of the house Mm -hmm. and they have children. And in a case like that, if I was in her shoes, yes, I would want to know if this person had a criminal record. And to your point, context matters. So I would want to know, but I wouldn't want to be hamstrung by the government telling me that I can't know at all. Yeah, Like, give me the license to work it out with this person. But the problem is how many people are like that who are landlords who will extend themselves in that way and give some level of grace and opportunity to someone who has a criminal record, you know? I feel like if I were a renter, I would want to know if my landlord had a record.
0: Like, I feel like that's pertinent information too. And that's maybe under discussed in this conversation. You know, now obviously the landlord, you know, in this circumstance, particularly when you're trying to find a home, has more power, I guess, in terms of, you know, because you're on the market for something and they can decide whether or not to sell you this good. Mm-hmm. But I think if that information isn't public, then maybe it should be. Yeah. Like, do I want to rent from someone who has a history of theft or a history of violence? Yeah. Is this someone who is trustworthy? Is this someone who I could depend on? Is this someone who is going to try to fuck me out
1: of, you know, some money or, you know, or whatever? Yeah. I mean, it definitely works in the inverse where it's some slum lords out there for sure, where, you know, 30 degrees outside and they ain't turn the radiator on. And, you know, so it may not be against the law, but them jokers are some cheats for sure. Yeah. I mean, housing, I feel like should be a human right. Yeah. If you
0: exist here, then you should have somewhere to sleep. Someone to lay your head. And it's just one of the great absurdities. It's like, I feel like if an alien came, right, never been on Earth before, came to America and saw just all of the, the riches and all of the wealth and all of the, you know, this prosperity that exists here. And then you told this alien, actually, but, you know, like five to 10%, however many people that are homeless or housing insecure either live outside. Mm hmm or are a paycheck away from being out in the street. Mm-hmm. It just would not make any sense.
1: Yeah, I agree. So let me ask you this. Like, So you say housing is a human right, like a fundamental right to have a place to live. Mm-hmm. Within the context of what we're talking about, it's not necessarily having a place to live. It's having a place to live where you want to live and not being told, where you can live. Yeah. So the people we spoke to, they have housing, Mm -hmm. but not where they want to live. Is it where you want to live or where you're able to live? Well, able, if you consider able to be like financial means. Yes. Financial means. Yeah. Yeah. So the problem here is that these folks have the financial means. They have the credentials. They have the credit score. They have all of that, but they're being denied. So they can't live where they want to live but they have the ability to live there with regard to what it takes financially.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, someone who, you know, I've lived this, you've lived this, you've studied this, you've worked on this, you know, obviously on um, both the renter's perspective and the homeowner's perspective. Like, I feel like there are some obvious remedies and they have to do with just this mentalization of capitalism, white supremacy, racism, Et
1: cetera. Them ain't, easy. Them, them ain't
0: easy. Yeah, they're not. I mean, they're easy answers, but not easy to answer. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I guess. <laughs> they're easy to solve, right? Right, right, right. But I'm wondering also if there are some less than obvious remedies, like maybe things that could be done in a more immediate way. To help remedy some of these
1: disparities. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Is a layer problem. Like the brother who wanted to move out of this neighborhood where there's a poor performing school. Why is the school poor performing? Because the property taxes are low. Why are the property taxes low? Because there are not a lot of homeowners there. Well, why are there not a lot of homeowners there? Because it's mostly a black neighborhood where folks is, you know... They go into the check cash in place and the, and they rent furniture at 20% interest and they can't keep money in their pocket in order to buy a home. And so, yeah, there's a lot of layers. And within each one of those layers, there's a lot of problems that need to be resolved. Well, do
0: you have any, like, hidden solutions? I mean, that's a hard question to ask. <laughs> 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 not I me mean, I feel like the people who come to my book talks in, like, asked me, like, can you solve racism? Like, motherfucker, I'm I'm just here. Come on now. Come on now. Write my book. <laughs> you know what I mean? Talking to y'all. I can't solve racism. Like, I don't, I'm sorry. <laughs> can't do that. So my bad.
1: You're like, not today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can you just listen to the next chapter? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> next in line for the signing, please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Brother Yusuf, we went with him to Capitol Hill. And he took some meetings with some Congress folks up there to try to move the needle on some legislation that would begin to remedy some of what's going on. But we all know that there's no silver bullet. You, just, you gotta chip away at this big raggedy-ass wall of systemic racism one chip at a time. Alzo Slay, thank you for coming through, man. really
0: appreciate you. Can you tell the people you know, what you got going on, where they can find you?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, man, much love and appreciation for you having me on. You know, I'm a fan and uh you're doing your thing for the movement so on behalf of all Kim folks across the country i say <laughs> thank you my brother appreciate it man you can find me on social media mainly on instagram i really don't it tweet it's at alzo slade on showtime you can find vice on showtime the story about housing discrimination and i got a story coming up about cobalt mining in the democratic republic of congo as well all right, man. Good seeing you. Likewise, bro. So up next for Dear Damon,
0: I'm joined by the homie Malaika Jabali, senior politics and news editor at Essence Magazine. And we try to advise the person who wants to know if the concept of chivalry needs any updates for 2023. But first, Damon hates. So I feel like if you go online, or not even just online, but in person, in real life, there are a lot of people like me, and by people like me, I mean black men, who have complained about the rising cost of going to the barber. To give an example of my own experience, I used to pay $10 for haircuts, maybe 12 or 13 with a tent. You know, and this was a pretty consistent thing from the time I was a teenager, um, I went away to college, and I went to school in Buffalo. The barbershop I went to there, the cuts were maybe about $13. So with a tip, it brought it up to like 17, but still reasonable. And then I came back home, haircuts were $10 again. And so now when I get my haircut, I pay about $30, right? And I'm not the only one who has experienced this inflation with the cost of a haircut. And there are a lot of us who have complained about, you know, why our barbers are overcharging us now, you gotta be ditty. (laughs) to go to a barber shop and be able to afford a haircut. And I, I don't know, I think we need to look at it differently. Like, I think that barbers, for the service that they provide us, have been traditionally and severely underpaid. So when we were paying $10, $12 back in the day, we should have been paying a lot more because just think about the service that a barber provides. I mean, not just for cutting your hair, it could be a psychologist, They could be a dating coach, they could be a, a fucking personal trainer, you know what i mean there's so many different functions that your barber can provide along with the added benefit the psychological boost of having a fresh haircut of leaving that barbershop going in looking like snuffleupagus and leaving feeling like idris elba and that is priceless and again that's a service that they have provided for us for decades for centuries however long and they've been underpaid and so if you're a black man or whoever is getting their hair done getting their hair cut and you are complaining about the rising costs well they have to live too they have to make a living too they have to feed their families too and if everyone else is making more money if everyone else is having to deal with rising food costs and aid costs and rent costs and and gas costs and all that other fuck shit barbers do too i get you know complain about the rent's too high and you know et cetera. Et cetera. yeah that's fine but we need to pay barbers their fair share And so if you're overpaying a little bit right now, fine. All that is is an overcorrection for all the years of underpaying. For this week on Dear Damon, I'm joined by Malaika Jabali, who is the senior news and politics editor at Essence Magazine. She's also a really good friend like it what's good
2: <laughs> what's up damon i would say long time no see but i feel like this has always been our relationship
0: yeah like i feel like we've seen each other in person like twice i think and yeah. we've known each other for probably about like six years at this point six seven years
2: about seven eight years
0: yeah yeah, it's been a minute but i guess i'll see you at essence this year hopefully yes, i hope so fingers crossed
2: i do hope you're there
0: okay and I see you got, who is that a picture of in the background?
2: So I used to be a chair of a social justice organization. And so this is where we would do our strategizing. And this is one of the candidates.
0: <laughs> okay. Because I just saw the Kente cloth. I was thinking, oh, you got Malcolm in the back. You know, you come an extra Vanta Black <laughs> for an episode.
2: Not a surprise. <laughs> I mean, that's on
0: brand for you. I wouldn't expect anything else <laughs> from you.
2: Very much. I was like, if, you know, if we're going to have a background, might as well do Kente. It's Juneteenth coming up. So exactly. We're getting ready. Exactly.
0: Now you're, I feel like you're Kente shaming me because I don't have any of that in my background. I just got exposed pipes and some color coded books back there. Okay. I feel like
2: that's close
0: enough. We got color. We good. Uh, yeah. Like I don't want to be the nigga, even though I am that nigga, obviously, because I have the color coded books, but I don't want to be the nigga with the color coded books.
2: Okay.
0: Because I feel like that's a brand and that's a thing. And I don't want to be that thing, even though. Yeah. That is what's happening back there.
2: So how do you actually find stuff? Do you remember what color the books are that you want?
0: I mean, these are books that I'm not reading. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. They're either books that I've read already or they're books that were sent to me. And maybe I'll read them eventually. You know, this is going on too long. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just just get Morgan, the producer.
2: (laughs) Dear Damon. What is chivalry in 2023? Is it still opening doors and covering
0: tips? Are there more modern ways, like memorizing a Starbucks order or sharing streaming service passwords? Okay, that's a good question. Because, you know, chivalry is based on etiquette. Etiquette evolves. Etiquette just expectations of behavior. And expectations of behavior evolves as time goes or are no, like, really hard set. There are some hard set rules, but then the expectations... Change now, as someone who's like you know, presumably still in the streets, like, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> why you gotta call me out?
2: You don't know what I got going on,
0: you know, you're right, you're right. I don't, uh, I said presumably to give you know the
2: benefit of the doubt
0: to qualify, but someone who's closer to the street,
2: I am closer to the street, I'm on an avenue or two.
0: <laughs> How would you respond to that? Like, what would you consider civil rights today? And does chivalry even matter to you?
2: Okay. I feel like I'm saying this as a Southern woman who I consider myself to be progressive, but as I've gotten older, I recognize that I actually do like chivalry. And to me, it's, there are certain traditions, you know? And so there's like different buckets, right? When you're dating, there's romance. Um, There's like when you Gone past romance, and you're just doing the day-to-day things that are thoughtful. So I think sharing passwords, like you, that's past chivalrous. At that point, you win a relationship. Like I'm not giving a password to somebody. We just talking on FaceTime. But like chivalry is like, okay, if I'm walking, he knows to walk on the on the other side, closest to the street. Like I appreciate that, and I think it's more so that it hints at them taking it seriously, you know, like, okay, you are trying to move towards an actual courtship or a relationship. I say that again, as somebody who's Southern, who I like those kinds of things. Now, where are you from? Atlanta.
0: You're from Atlanta. And where do you live now?
2: I moved back to Atlanta. So I was in Milwaukee.
0: Oh, okay. So, okay. Okay. I didn't know you moved back to Atlanta. I thought you were still up North.
2: I've seen every variety. I've seen the New York dudes slash East coast. Cause I feel like the whole Northeast quadrant, you know, It's, like, similar.
0: Well, that, I guess, leads to my question. It's, like, have you noticed any distinctions, you know, not just in terms of dating style or best practices or methods, but in terms of what people from certain regions of the country consider chivalrous? Like, there might be an act that isn't considered chivalrous in the South, but if a New York nigga did it, then it would be. You know what I mean? Um, And, you know, vice versa.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Probably ordering your Uber so you don't have to get on the subway. Like, that would be chivalrous in New York. I had somebody, you know, that was cute. I was like, okay, that's a cute little touch. And Uber had just come out at the time when <laughs> when I remember somebody doing <laughs> Like, I'll Uber you here, Uber you back. All right, I appreciate it. In Atlanta, people got cars. So, you know, back then, you didn't necessarily, like, need an Uber. I don't know what they're doing out west. I feel like that's a whole... That's a whole
0: other... That doesn't matter. Out West doesn't count. (laughs) Yeah. West Coast doesn't count. I don't know what they got going on. That's a great point, too. Even the distinction between train, cab, Uber cities, and car cities. Mm -hmm. Right? Because there's a lot of chivalry, or at least a lot of expectations, you know, when it comes to chivalry, when it comes to dating, that are centered on the car. Right. Centered on who is driving. Centered on, you know, who is pumping the gas. And so, if you live in a city where cars are somewhat obsolete... Um, then that creates a whole new kind of standard of, okay, well, in replacement of the car, so what do you have? What is chivalrous on the train? Yeah. And a lot of chivalry, in my opinion, is just basically just regular kindness. Mm. Like if you are an able-bodied person and you see someone struggling with bags or you see a person who might be older or appears to be older or a person who appears to be impaired, you let them sit, right? That's just the thing. And also, you know, as far as to train chivalry, I know there are people who believe that if there are women standing, there shouldn't be any men sitting.
2: Yeah. I think that those are good ones. I feel like New Yorkers, they want matching Tims. Like, if I get... Them, <laughs> I got my pair of Tims. Let me some matching ones. Let's go, baby. It's like, okay, that's cute. Yeah, that is a really good point, too, about the car dynamics. As you mentioned, like, opening doors. But some parts of chivalry are kind of silly. Like, I don't, you know, I don't... Obviously, I can open my own door. But it is just nice to see. I think there's a disconnect there for me in terms of what I know that I like to see and what actually makes sense. Because it doesn't need to happen, but it's a nice gesture.
0: Yeah, of course. You know, you're able-bodied. You can open your own door. You can pump your own gas. You know, pay your own bills. Yeah. <laughs> you know, fly, fly yourself out wherever you need to go. Order your own Uber. You can do all that shit yeah. yourself. But I guess it's about the gesture of it, you know. And again, this is we're speaking from a very heteronormative context in this capacity. Like I'm presuming that the person who wrote in with the questions also, you know, coming from a heteronormative perspective and thinking of uh male female relationships. And when we're thinking of like an updated chivalry rule book or rubric, like how social media factors into that too. Like, Is there a best practice? Is there a preferred way of like engaging on social media? Like, is there a way to be chivalrous online?
2: Mm, Probably not liking other people's photos that don't need to be liked.
0: (laughs) Was that? I mean, is that is that chivalry or is that just like expectations of actual relationship behavior? Chivalry, I think, kind of exists a little outside of that. Yeah. Um. where chivalry is more of just a standard uh, a yeah. way that you interact with people and the way you treat people, whereas you saying the thing about liking people's pictures, which is, I feel like that's the point of Instagram, is to like pictures. Like, you're not allowed to like...
2: And there's my caveat that don't need to be liked. You liking ex's pictures? <laughs> you liking a whole bunch of IG models and thirst traps? <laughs> you don't need to be liking that.
0: Uh, okay, I concede that. I agree with that. Although I think there's a distinction. I think there's a distinction between... Liking some IG model who you have no relationship with, no context. You just like the picture and like yeah. your ex. I think those are different behaviors.
2: Yeah. So for a Pittsburgh dude, what? how did you guys?
0: <laughs> what did you say?
2: For a Pittsburgh dude, what was chivalry for you when you were dating your wife in particular?
0: I mean, chivalry, it was, you know, some of the things that you mentioned. Being the person that drives when we, you know, we go places. Opening doors, pumping the gas, you know, doing the inside of the sidewalk trick. You know, and I say it's a trick because if you're walking for a long distance, sometimes you could get twist around. And sometimes, you know, you're crossing the street. Right. And you're doing this thing and now she's on the outside. And so, right. a thing to do is you just kind of <laughs> you position her so that she's inside, you know, just do like a little, you know, like just a little mm-hmm. nudge so that she's back inside. OK. And that's a trick.
2: Yeah, I've always wondered, like the crossing the street thing. You talked about a manual. Do y'all have like a driver's manual for style way walking? Because I'm like, where's he going to go? <laughs> I don't know. So should I be here? Should I be here? What about this upcoming traffic? Or is it going to be this one? I don't know.
0: So I mean, I I think that again, there were those just standard, you know, chivalrous behaviors, and 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 again, it's it's one of those things where. Yeah, of course, you know, she was able-bodied. She was able to pump her own gas, drive her own car, et cetera. Now, I don't think you can really have this conversation also without interrogating whether like chivalry is a behavior that is for the person you're with or it's for you. Mm. I think this gets to my point about how chivalry, you can't really divorce it from the idea of control. Even thinking of my own behavior while I was dating and, you know, even while I've been married about how you know, things like if we go somewhere we're driving, I'm driving and we're driving my car, right? Like I'm opening the doors, I'm pumping the gas, I'm paying for everything, even though it's our money, I'm the one who is paying for things. And so there is that idea. And again, this is more of like a self-interrogation. Was like, is it about showing care or is it about exerting control? Um, is it like some ingrained part of patriarchy where I don't feel as masculine or whatever if I'm not in control? How much of that, and this is something I'm asking myself, also is about showing care or how much of that is like the performance of care where you're showing everyone else that you are performing this and also like my own control issues. And I'm wondering if it's possible to divorce like the care part of the chivalry from the control part, because there is, yeah, I feel like those, or at least on the same spectrum, you know what I mean, of behavior.
2: I think those conflicting feelings can also live in tandem with how women feel about it, you know? And I think ultimately it comes down to respect. So does your partner still feel respected and acknowledged in other areas if, you know, you're doing those symbolic things? You know, if you are trying to control everything then that might be an issue. But if you're controlling you handling the door, I'm sure she's going to be okay with it. And then I think patriarchy just works differently for Black women because we typically weren't given the possibility to embrace those norms because we were the ones who also had to toil. We also had to work. like We didn't have to have a a labor movement for us per se because we were always working. And so I think in 2023, in some ways, it is still pretty traditional because I think a lot of Black women want to be able to feel, okay, somebody else can take control now. So it's not necessarily, you might be conflicted by it, but another woman might appreciate it, especially if she hasn't had the chance to not be in control sometimes.
0: Malika, thank you for putting a bow on this, for putting a period, exclamation point stamp, you know what I mean? Um, your footprint. And the answer the question, I guess, you know, has chivalry updated? Yes, it has. I think like most other things, you just have to pay attention and listen to people and see like, okay, well, which behaviors have evolved, which behaviors are no longer like acceptable, which behaviors now are things that are expected. And also you have to pay attention to your partner, you know, whether you're dating or in a relationship, because there are some people who expect this and there are some people who you know, might consider your chivalry to be, you know, an act of disrespect or, or whatever. And I think that it, you just have to be mindful of who you're actually with when you do this. But, Melica, you have a book.
2: I do. And it's about relationships, speaking of.
0: <laughs> okay. Can you tell us a bit about it?
2: Sure. It's called It's Not You, It's Capitalism, Why It's Time to Break Up and How to Move On. And it's a play on some of my relationship experiences being in, I feel like if you can survive New York, you can survive anything. That's kind (laughs) of like how capitalism works. You know, we had this ongoing relationship with somebody that we've been putting so much effort into it and not really getting it reciprocated. You know, we're giving and giving, we're paying our money, we're paying our taxes and like what's happening with it. So it's about, you know, just finding alternatives to capitalism because it's messing up education and healthcare and mm-hmm. every element of our lives.
0: Yeah, it's a bad partner. You know, what I mean that we can't break up with. Now, do you have a, a release date?
2: Yes, October 24th. It's available for pre-orders right now. It was a labor of love. So I'm glad. It's-
0: <laughs> I know the feeling.
2: Glad it's finally out. And so this is for people, even if you were like, um, I'm curious about socialism or I'm curious about capitalism, I don't really know. But it's like, it's fun. Like I had fun writing it. It's, it's like lighthearted, but serious. I have a chapter that has Brandy and Monica references, but it's a chapter about race and colonialism so you can figure out how that ties together
0: <laughs> boom okay the boy is mine <laughs> The capital- Ooh,
2: see, hit you up. The
0: capitalism is mine yeah okay okay i dig it and again you have the long subtitle so you might not be able to do what i did and get the your book title tattooed on your arm but maybe maybe there's space where you could do like a forearm sleeve
2: i know Are there Google lenses? Like, maybe I can get it itched in the... Do people still do that anymore?
0: (laughs) Maybe. All right, Malika, appreciate you. Thanks for coming through.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Again, just want to thank everyone for coming through again this week. Also, great guests, Alzo Slade, Malika Jabali. Great conversation, great friends. It was just great. Just greatness. Greatness happening here. Um, and tell a friend, tell people that there's greatness happening <laughs> stuck with Damon Young, wherever you get your podcast. Also, if you're on Spotify, there are interactive polls, interactive questions that you can answer that you can ask. We have all the things that you need here. We are a one stop shop. Also, if you have any questions about anything under the sun, hit me up at deardamon@crooked.com. alright you All right, y'all. See you next week. Stuck with Damon Young is host about me, Damon Young. Our executive producers are Kendra James and Madeline Herringer. Our producers are Ryan Wallerson and Morgan Moody. Mixing and Mastering by Sarah Gilbalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Theme Music and Score by Taka Yasuzawa. And special thanks to Charlotte Landis. From Gimlet and Spotify, our executive producers are Crystal Hall Stressler. Lauren Silverman, Nicole Beamster-Bauer, Neil Drumming, and Matt Shields Special thanks to Leslie Guam.